And we're back, ladies and gentlemen, on the Fleet Matthews Radio Show. Thank you for tuning in and listening wherever you are uh, in the world. Richard Rothstein is back with me. He is a research uh, associate of the uh, Economic Policy Institute and a fellow at the Thurgood Marshall Institute of the uh, NAACP Legal Defense Fund and uh, of the Haas Institute at the University of California, Berkeley. He is the new author of the phenomenal book, The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. Welcome back, Richard, to the show. Thank you very much. So uh, you took you 10 years to write this book. We, we, you and I talked uh, first uh, about uh, that 40-page uh, white paper you produced called The Making of Ferguson, uh, which was also mm-hmm. part, I guess, of uh, the work that you were doing and researching for this book. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. I um, when when uh, Michael Brown was killed by the policeman in Ferguson, Missouri, I I already knew a lot about uh, how suburbs like Ferguson were created as predominantly African American segregated neighborhoods, and so I was able to use that background knowledge to investigate the history of St. Louis segregation specifically. Wow. So uh, this is a concept I think a lot of people. Uh, don't know about, um, have heard about it, and, and just think it's just a, a natural thing uh, that has occurred over time. Um, where, do, where did the ghettos uh, of, of America come from? Was this a deliberate act, or was this just something that just happened? Now, you've got your finger on exactly the crucial point. Uh, most people today, uh, liberals as well as conservatives, think we have something we call de facto segregation, which is segregation that was created uh, by individual acts of prejudice or discrimination, or maybe even people's choices of wanting to live only with uh, same race neighbors, or perhaps real estate agents who were acting uh, in a a private capacity. But Mm -hmm. that's uh, a myth, as I say, uh, de facto segregation. Of course, all those things happen, but the most important cause of the residential segregation of every metropolitan area in this country is government policy that was explicitly openly designed to create segregation in every metropolitan area. And that's not just in the South, but in the North, the Midwest, and the West. It was an open, written, explicit policy of the federal government to create segregation, and it accomplished that, creating patterns in the mid 20th century that uh, persist to this day and structure how the residential landscape is organized. That's a, that's a very powerful statement uh, because you're saying the government is responsible for basically the, uh, I, I would assume poverty in America as it relates to uh, African-American, African-American families trying to create and generate wealth uh, through property ownership where they weren't able to do so because of uh, these policies and legislation that was in place and in plain sight. Yes, it was unconstitutional. The, the important uh, aspect of this that uh, I hope people will recognize is if it's the government that is responsible or primarily responsible for the segregation of the metropolitan areas, then racial segregation, residential segregation, is as unconstitutional as uh, segregation on buses or water fountains in the South or any of the other kinds of segregation that we think we eliminated in the 1960s. 
the residential segregation, if it was created by government, and I think in my book, The Color of Law, I've demonstrated uh, that it was created by government explicitly, openly, in written form, then it's an unconstitutional system, and we have an obligation under our legal system to remedy it. Because so long as we believe that it happened by accident or happened because of private individuals' choices, it's very difficult to think of how we might remedy it. Uh, a million private decisions created it. Uh, if that's the case, uh, it's hard to imagine a million opposite private decisions uncreating it. Mm-hmm. But if we understand that it was created by government in an unconstitutional fashion, then we're an ob- under an obligation to consider those government policies that might equally aggressively undo the segregation which was unconstitutionally created. Do you, do you have like uh, some area or time frame when this began and and, and, and what maybe uh, motivated the idea uh, other than just blatant racism? Well, um, it began really uh, most powerfully during the New Deal uh, when the federal government for the first time began to uh, build uh, civilian public housing. There was no public housing in this country before uh, 1933 when the Public Works Administration was established. And the Public Works Administration built housing across the country in the Northwest and Midwest on a segregated basis, uh, creating separate projects for whites and separate projects for African-Americans. Most of them were for whites, not for African-Americans. They were for lower middle-class families, working-class families who had lost their homes in the Depression. And frequently, the uh, government uh, created segregation with these projects where it had never been known before. In my book, I tell the story of Langston Hughes, who in his autobiography, described how he was an adolescent in Cleveland, Ohio, living in an integrated neighborhood. Uh, Many neighborhoods in the country at that time were integrated because workers had to be able to get to work uh, without automobiles. And so they all lived close enough to downtown workplaces, uh, factories primarily, uh, where they could walk to work. And so you had neighborhoods like the one that Langston Hughes grew up in in Cleveland with uh, African-Americans and Irish immigrants and Italian immigrants and Jews and migrants from rural areas, all living in the same integrated neighborhoods. It's not to say that every other house was uh, occupied by an African-American, but overall the neighborhoods had uh, were mixed. And uh, Langston Hughes describes how he uh, his best friend was Polish. He dated a Jewish girl in high school, uh, this was not the the kind of segregation that we know today. Mm -hmm. And yet the Public Works Administration came into that neighborhood, demolished a a number of uh, blocks in that neighborhood, and created segregated public housing, one project for whites, one project for blacks, um, creating segregation where it hadn't before been known. And this was a very, very powerful policy. It was practiced across the country. It continued during World War II when thousands, hundreds of thousands of workers flocked to centers of defense production for jobs in the war industry, mobilizing for World War II and keeping the the troops supplied during World War II. And uh, with that kind of migration, uh, the assembly lines would have uh, ground to a halt if you couldn't find housing for the workers who were overwhelming cities that, whose populations were multiplying very rapidly. Mm-hmm. So the federal government built housing for war workers in World War II, 
and it built it on a segregated basis. Again, in many cases, in places which had never before known segregation, and in places where there was uh, informal segregation, it solidified it. So in my book, uh, for example, I tell the story of a, a town in California, thought to be a very liberal area in Northern California, outside San Francisco, Richmond, California, which whose population exploded from about 20,000 to about 100,000 uh, during the World War because uh, it was the center of shipbuilding. The Kaiser shipyards were, were turning out uh, merchant vessels to carry supplies uh, uh, across the ocean. In Richmond, uh, there were almost no African Americans living in Richmond before World War II. A few domestic servants were living there. Uh, by the end of World War II, there were uh, 15,000 African Americans living there, and they were living in segregated housing that had been created by the federal government. Housing for African American workers in the shipyards were placed uh, along the railroad tracks in the industrial area. Housing for white workers in the shipyards. Uh, was placed in the, the residential areas where whites were living previously. And it created a segregated uh, pattern in uh, Northern California that hadn't previously been known. And as I say, this went on across the country. So this was one very powerful uh, federal policy to create segregation. The other very powerful federal policy was the action of another New Deal agency, the Federal Housing Administration, which was established a year after the Public Works Administration. Uh, many people are probably familiar with the fact that the Federal Housing Administration redlined African-American neighborhoods and wouldn't uh, guarantee or insure loans to African-Americans in black neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. But a much more powerful uh, policy of the Federal Housing Administration was to guarantee loans, bank loans, not to homeowners, but to builders who would create giant subdivisions in the suburbs on a whites-only basis. So perhaps the, the best-known example of this is uh, Levittown outside New York. Uh, Levitt, the builder, could never have assembled the capital to build uh, 17,000 homes, which he eventually built, uh, for which he had no buyers at the time. The only way he was able to build that uh, suburb was by going to the Federal Housing Administration, getting their approval of his plans, and then taking that approval to banks, uh, to get guaranteed uh, loans uh, for construction purposes. And in order to get that approval from the Federal Housing Administration, he was required to agree not to sell homes to African-Americans and to place uh, language in the deed of every home in Levittown prohibiting resale to African-Americans. And again, this went on across the country, uh, not only in New York, uh, but in suburbs around every metropolitan area, the Federal Housing Administration imposed this uh, racial restriction as a condition of getting the loans to build the suburbs. So the result of these two policies, uh, and there were many, many other federal and state and local policies that supported them, but the result of these two powerful policies was to create what uh, later uh, uh, analysts uh, referred to as a white noose around uh, every metropolitan area in which whites were living in single-family homes in the suburbs and African-Americans were renting uh, apartments, uh, usually in very dense, overcrowded neighborhoods uh, within cities. Wow. And these patterns, patterns exist to this day. Sure, absolutely. Well, um, the infrastructure in, in order to, to, to build these ghettos, to, to create these ghettos uh, these, and, or, or urban areas, um, I remember, you know, telling you, I, I'm, you know, I'm from Chicago, and I remember reading in your book about, you know, the Dan Ryan, 
uh, was, mm-hmm. was to separate uh, the, the the city from the whites and the blacks. And uh, after talking to you, I realized that was just that was part of the actual infrastructure. So it wasn't just the the zoning and and the policies, but it was actually built into the infrastructure of how they were going to build out these uh, separate cities, uh, worlds, if you will. Yes, the Federal Housing Administration, in fact, had a a publication called the Underwriting Manual, which was distributed to appraisers all across the country um, to use in assessing whether properties were eligible for FHA insurance and VA insurance. And the Underwriting Manual specifically called for using highways um, and uh, uh, other natural barriers to uh, separate uh, black from white neighborhoods. And the Dan Ryan Expressway was built uh, in accordance with that policy. Uh, In in my book, I have a picture of a a wall, a six-foot-high cement wall uh, running for half a mile that the Federal Housing Administration required the builder to put up to separate his white development from a nearby African-American neighborhood as a condition of getting uh, loans to build that uh, subdivision. Uh, This was a requirement. It it would not grant the loan until he built the the wall, and once he built the wall, the loan was issued. So this was very explicit, open federal policy. Absolutely amazing. Um, I was telling you before that uh, Thomas Bialosi was talking about uh, race technologies, and one of the four technologies was spacing, and uh, that was the part about segregation and uh, keeping, uh, in order to keep this, thing called scientific racism alive and keep the separation. You've got to separate the blacks from the whites. And your work policy really brings that out and, and, and proves that this is not, you know, uh, conspiracy theory or, you know, hyperbole. It's actual fact and actual law and policy as unconstitutional as it is. Where do we go from here? Now that we know this, uh, you know, even well, you, you were saying that even yes, uh, Section 8 housing laws and, and that are currently going on are still unconstitutional. Well, they're reinforcing the unconstitutional patterns that were established. Um, okay. You say now that we know this, uh, but the reality is that we don't know this, and uh, that's uh, the purpose of this book and others who've written about it. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates writes about it, and other authors have been writing about it. Uh, it's necessary that uh, the informed public come to know this because unless we know this, uh, unless the, there's a new consensus that we don't have de facto segregation, but in fact we have government-sponsored unconstitutional segregation, until that, there's that new consensus, we can't begin to develop the kinds of policies that are necessary to remedy it. Uh, if we believe, as I said, that it all happened by accident, it's hard to think about how it can be undone by accident. Mm-hmm. If we understand, and I mean not just uh, you and me, but if the, the broader informed public understands that it was created on purpose by explicit policy, then a consequence of that is that there's an obligation to remedy it. And we can begin, begin to discuss the kinds of remedies that would be necessary, but we can't even begin to contemplate them uh, until we have that understanding, because they're all politically unrealistic at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned the Section 8 program, and um, I said that that reinforces existing segregation. Well, we have these uh, the, these patterns that were created by federal policy, uh, the, the white suburbs, uh, the, the African-American urban areas. 
Uh, the Section 8 program uh, reinforces that segregation. Uh, as you know, uh, the, the Section 8 program provides a subsidy to uh, families who rent apartments, and the subsidy is calculated on the uh, average rent in, a, in, a, uh, in the area that the housing agency covers. But, of course, the average rent is lower than the rent uh, needed to rent in a, a good neighborhood, in a high-opportunity neighborhood. And it's too much to rent in a segregated neighborhood. So what happens is that landlords exploit the program by charging more than the market requires to Section 8 uh, recipients. And Section 8 recipients can't rent in middle-class neighborhoods because the, the rents are, are uh, high and there's not sufficient subsidy to rent there. So the result is that most Section 8 voucher uh, recipients rent apartments in already segregated neighborhoods, reinforcing that segregation. In addition, in most places in the country, there are a few exceptions, but in most places in the country, it's not unlawful for landlords to discriminate against Section 8 voucher holders. So even if a Section 8 voucher holder is able to rent in a middle-class neighborhood, uh, landlords will refuse to rent to them. It's simply because they have a, a federal subsidy for their rent. And uh, that's also a reinforces segregation because the only landlords who, who are willing to rent to Section 8 voucher holders in many places, most places, are, are landlords in already segregated neighborhoods. So that program needs to be reformed so that instead of supporting segregation, it supports integration. But we're not, not likely to reform that program unless we understand how this segregation was created. Wow, this is great. One last thing, and we're talking about infrastructure. And so going back to Ferguson, you know, uh, Ferguson obviously developed uh, over a period of time, but there were also other things that, that played a role um, uh, in the effects, the aftermath of, of, of that segregation in terms of zoning, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, liquor stores and various different types of, of businesses and industry uh, that would remain to those urban areas, the lack of, um, uh, you know, quality schools and education, transportation, all of those were also factors uh, that played a role uh, in creating uh, this systemic uh, uh, generational poverty uh, that we called urban ghettos today. Well, yes, there were many federal policies uh, as, uh, that supported this, part, this, this system of segregation, as well as many local and state policies that supported it. Uh, you mentioned the fact, and you're correct, that once these areas of concentrated disadvantage, uh, concentrating African Americans in single dense neighborhoods were created, then zoning boards and city councils uh, gave permits for industry to for industry to locate in these neighborhoods in these what should have been residential neighborhoods and for toxic uh, facilities to be uh, junkyards uh, to be uh, located in these neighborhoods. Um, there were other policies as well uh, that supported it. Uh, at the federal level, the Internal Revenue Service gave uh, tax exemptions to institutions that uh, promoted and enforced racial segregation. This was quite open. Uh, one example I mentioned in my book is uh, in your hometown in Chicago, uh, the University of Chicago, under the leadership of Robert Hutchins, who was known as a great liberal education leader. Um, uh, the University of Chicago, Robert Hutchins, maintained a, a legal team in the office of the presidency of the university, whose job it was to uh, 
prosecute uh, African Americans who uh, managed to buy homes in the area surrounding the University of Chicago and have them evicted because they had violated the racial deeds that prohibited sale to African Americans. Wow. Uh, you know, many, many, um, I'm sorry, go on. Uh, uh, no, I just well, said, wow. What I was going yeah, to say is that there were many instances of African Americans who uh, bought homes in uh, white neighborhoods uh, near near African-American neighborhoods simply because the African-American neighborhoods were so overcrowded. And as a result, the housing supply of African-Americans was very restricted. So they were able and willing to pay much more for housing than whites would pay uh, for similar housing. So if a white homeowner wanted to sell, it was to his advantage to sell to an African-American. But when he did so, uh, he could be sued uh, for uh, and uh, the sale reversed by taking the the owner to court and having him evicted. And the University of Chicago was uh, 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 prominent in, in enforcing those kinds of lawsuits and pr- prosecuting them. And the Internal Revenue Service uh, never questioned the uh, University of Chicago's tax exemption, which was uh, an unconstitutional act on the part of the, and the illegal act on the part of the Internal Revenue Service. So there were many, many of these policies at the federal and local and state levels that reinforce segregation. And when you put them all together, uh, it's obvious we have a system of uh, state-sponsored segregation that has mm-hmm. never been addressed or remedied. Um, we look at Flint, Michigan. Uh, last question here. Flint, Michigan is another prime example of uh, the effects of segregation. Well, yes, this is a... It is an example. Uh, I am sure that uh, uh, such a policy of diverting uh, water from a polluted source to a community would never been, have been uh, prosecuted in a middle-class white neighborhood. And so once you have concentrated the most powerless, uh, um, poorest, the uh, most disadvantaged families in a single neighborhood, uh, it's very easy for local officials to exploit that neighborhood and take advantage of it in ways that they would not have done had uh, the neighborhood not been created on a segregated basis. Unbelievable. Great work with uh, the color of law. Um, Where where do you think this is going to go? How do we start the conversation so that we can uh, begin talking to our politicians and creating some level of policy? Where do you think we should start? Well, I'm starting a conversation with you today. This is what we <laughs> this is what we should be doing. We need to be talking about this to develop a much broader consensus and understanding of um, how this happened. And you know, it's not just whites. African Americans don't know this history either. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I talk about in in uh, my book, The Color of Law, is that we're misteach- misteaching this history in our schools. Mm-hmm. I've examined uh, the most commonly used American history textbooks, uh, and uh, none of them are uh, honest about how residential segregation occurred in the North. They call it de facto segregation. They say it all happened by accident. If we do this bad a job of teaching our young people this history, they'll be in no better position to remedy it than our generation has been. Mm-hmm. So that's probably the first place we should start is uh, by making sure that the uh, concerned citizens, activists, parents uh, demand that their school boards uh, adopt curricula that teach this history accurately. Uh, 
I, I hope that the, your listeners will um, either read my book or other books like it uh, and um, learn this history so that they'll be able to uh, participate in this broader consensus that uh, will eventually or could eventually lead to policy change. But it can't start at the top. It's got to start by creating a new uh, consensus around the history and understanding of the forgotten history so that we can begin to move forward. We can't move forward on the basis of a lie, and that's what we have today. Wow. Thank you for that. The book, ladies and gentlemen, is The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. Richard Rothstein is the author, uh, amazing researcher. Thank you so much for sharing with me today. Thank you very much. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next time. Well, we won't see you, but we'll hear from you because this is a radio show. Take care, everybody. Thank you.